Our guest for this episode is writer Sarah Marshall. Her work has been featured in The Believer, The New Republic, BuzzFeed, and Elle. She writes about pop culture, true crime, and the female experience. She came on our show to talk about her essay that appeared in BuzzFeed about the six-year-old pageant queen, JonBenet Ramsey, who was murdered in 1996. I'm so pleased to have you on today's show to talk about the essay that appeared on BuzzFeed about JonBenet Ramsey, who's a six-year-old pageant queen who was murdered in 1996. The essay is titled, Why America Will Never Stop Trying to Solve JonBenet Ramsey's Murder. So, for listeners who don't know this case, can you tell us about it? So the JonBenet Ramsey murder case happened in at Christmas in 1996, and at the time, it was first treated as a kidnapping because JonBenet Ramsey's mother, Patsy Ramsey, came downstairs, um, told the police that she had found, told the police that she had come downstairs and found a, a ransom note, basically demanding, telling telling her and her husband, John Ramsey, who was a wealthy businessman, that kidnappers had taken her daughter and that they required uh, an amount of money that actually turned out to be equal to a holiday bonus that John had just received. So from the start, it seemed like something, you know, a parental nightmare, but was treated as a kidnapping. The police came to the house and investigated as a kidnapping. And since this happened in Christmas, at Christmas uh, in Boulder, Colorado, which was a very affluent town with very little violent crime, there wasn't wasn't really anyone available at, on the day of uh, the crime who was kind of the, the best and, and most experienced, most seasoned uh, on the force because right. those people were senior and they tend, they were on Christmas vacation at the time. And so it was treated initially as a hit, kidnapping. Detectives came, couldn't really find anything, finally sent John Ramsey to look around his house one last time and see if he saw anything. And that was when he went to the basement and found his daughter's body. And so what had been a kidnapping investigation became a murder investigation. Um, but to me, one of the most interesting things about this case is that, you know, it was from the beginning this really, this paradoxical tragedy, but the story didn't really become news on a national scale until it was revealed that JonBenet Ramsey had been a child uh, beauty pageant competitor. And that was what really made it into a, a huge tabloid story and what made the the public need to know uh, what had happened and who had killed JonBenet Ramsey become really uh, as intense as it became and still was to an extent. And it was also something that cast a lot of suspicion on her mother. So I think that that, that made the story, um, that put it into the tabloids too. And it has really stayed there since then. Right. Moving forward, how how do you think women are portrayed in crime stories? And do you think that the media reinforces gender roles? I think women in crime stories always have to have a, a rule or always have to have a role. There's always kind of specific roles that we roles that we follow. And there's always ways that we that women in, in, in crime stories perform a function in the narrative. So you can be the victim, which is obviously the best role. Because that's the one where it's it's kind of the only positive role for you to have. It's the one where you can be extravagantly mourned and um, avenged and have a lot of a lot of powerful people doing a lot of things in your name. Um, or you can be 
you know, some kind of a, a criminal. You can be a killer mom. You can be uh, a, a sex-starved, violent girlfriend in like a color, killer couple's folie a deux. You can be a money-hungry bimbo who drives a man to greed and immorality. So like you have to have a function. I think that women in, in crime stories, there's one good role for us. There's a lot of bad roles for us. And what we mainly do is make men do stuff on our account, or at least that's how the stories tend to go. Right. Well, I'm going to move forward to um, what you wrote, which really touched on what I'm thinking. So, rooted in the public's enduring fascination with Jean Benet's pageantry was the idea that her murder was unavoidably connected to her apparent womanliness, that a woman was inherently even more vulnerable than a child. And I ask you, what role does Jean Benet play in this media portrayal of womanliness slash vulnerable child? What crime narratives do in a really satisfying way is that they we develop some basic templates, and then we have a lot of stories that do kind of follow, seem to follow those templates in a general way, like a story where you have a young female victim or a story where you have a couple who, um, who commit murders together. And so we have sort of, we have templates for what we want those stories to look like based on the ways that we want to reinforce the gender roles in them. And so we can often take something that, you know, has some corresponding details or matches the story that we already know to some degree and that doesn't really put up that much of a of a fight as we sort of wrestle it in to the the template that we're looking for. And I think that, that the Jean Benet Ramsey story is interesting in that way because it was fairly easy for viewers to wrestle it into a number of templates, specifically with Patsy Ramsey, who people, you know, who as the mother, as Jean Benet's mother and as someone who had um who the public could see as already occupying kind of a villainous role in her daughter's life because she had been the instigator of the pageantry and she had been the one who had kind of given her, um, encouraged her to adopt these manners and these kind of means of performance and given her this clothing and this costuming and this makeup that kind of put her in the position of a woman um, rather than a child. There was something strange about that. And I think that the public was right to be disturbed by that. But then what happened was that if we saw something disturbing in the relationship between the parent and the child, we had a very hard time just as consumers of the story, not taking that to its most extreme conclusion. You know, we we had to say, well, um, this seems like a, a relationship that had some unhealthy aspects. So therefore, the story this is closest to is killer mom. So the story is killer mom. And, and that also, you know, and that story is so attractive, the killer mom story, in part, because it that reinforces its own gender archetypes, I think. Also, you mentioned in your article that on CNN, Brian Cabell said that when it emerged that the child had been a beauty pageant queen, the story became sexier. What do you think about that statement? I don't know what I think he meant by that. And I'm not sure if he knows what he meant by that. That's kind of, that's a quote that I put in because I was really kind of mystified by it because I suppose there's a suggestion that, you know, the word sexy, that the way I think media people, and probably the way they use it still, but certainly the way it seems people use it in kind of nineties tabloid media reporting was that something had like that, you know, that sizzle, that snap, crackle and pop that just sort of like read right for tabloid news. But I mean, the subtext that many people brought to the pageantry component um, of of 
you know, of JonBenet Ramsey's life. We don't know if there was a pageantry component to the murder itself, but we know that it was a major part of her existence and her family's existence, um, is that there was the possibility of sexual abuse. And people were worried that, you know, that if there was not, if if her mother was not guilty of sexual abuse, that she was maybe colluding with someone who was, or that she had opened the door to a world of adults who wanted to prey on young children, that there was that there was the possibility um, of of an angle of sex crime. And I think that it's possible that the the best way that someone who's working in sort of the emergent 24-hour news cycle in the 90s can say that is to, to describe it as sexy. Um, so I don't know if that's what he meant, but it's certainly something that I uh, contemplated as I was writing this because it seems like a line that sort of distills um, just the, the compelling quality that this this narrative had on consumers and on insiders, too. You talk about light versus dark in the following excerpt. In the missing white women cases the public knows so well, Chandra Levy, Natalie Holloway, Brooke Wilberger, to name a few, and whose hold on the American imagination remains undiminished, it is impossible to escape the symbolism of light versus dark. It is in the tabloid headline in the detective's remarks to the press in the nightly news. The girl walked into the night, into the darkness, and then she was gone. These are terrifying stories, but in these tellings, they at least have rules. Stay where you belong and you won't be hurt. This last phrase is something that is only told to women. Um, is only told to women and children, from like my knowledge. Uh, does Do you think the media feeds into our public's perception of protection of women? Yeah, I think it absolutely does. I think that um, growing up surrounded by true crime stories, mm-hmm. and I think that I am more aware of them to an extent because I gravitated toward them um, starting when I was a teenager. Because I think, you know, really as, a, as an adolescent girl, when I was trying to figure out just how to relate to my own gender role and how to relate to being female and like what that meant and what that meant in terms of the anxiety that it seemed like um, that my family felt about me and that society felt about me and that I felt about um, about my existence and my sense of, of vulnerability based on living in a female body and how, you know, how I could find a way to to understand that and where it was coming from and what to do to it. I felt like I found I saw that in, in its most purest form in crime stories, um, because you know, murders and sexual assaults and violent crimes really don't tend to take this parable form. You know, most of the time, if you're a victim of violent crime, it's because you were, you know victimized by someone who knew you, by someone who was in your life. You know, the people tend to to hurt or to kill people that they know. But we're really attracted um, in terms of the stories that we latch onto as a public to stories about the young woman who had no reason to think that she could be the victim of, of anything, um, but inexplicably was. And I think we're really, we're attracted to that inexplicableness. We, we love the stories about serial killers. We love, you know, talking about Ted Bundy and the Hillside Stranglers and the Night Stalker and, you know, all of the, I think that there's a real actual kind of a hunger on the part of the American public for more serial killers. And there was, you know, whenever there's, I think a couple of years ago, there was, you know, a lot of attention, um, 
paid to the fact that there was evidence that there was maybe a serial killer at work on Long Island. And I don't think that that ever gelled into anything conclusive. But you can, I always feel that I can sense this, this sort of bated breath when there are news articles suggesting that there might be a new serial killer at work somewhere, because we love serial killer stories as a public. They do something for us. They're cathartic. Um, they make us feel like we can identify these sort of dark forces at work on the world, and we can see how dark they are because they attack something that is, you know, obviously overwhelmingly harmless and pure and good, which is the young girl, the young, wealthy white girl who we cannot think of a way to blame for her own uh, trauma or her own murder. And so we love those stories because if they work out well and if they if we can kind of tell them right, then they lead to us identifying the dark force and destroying it in some way. And that's not really, you know... The rules that those stories follow, you don't see them a lot in, in the ways that, that crime actually, that crime and violence and, and you know, sexual assault and sexual abuse and, and violence against women actually exist in the world. But those are the versions that, that we really are attracted to as a public and the versions that we then perpetuate by attempting to tell those stories using details that don't necessarily fit them. But I think that, you know, that... The use that those stories play in our lives is just um, really it's enough to make us shift fact if we need to a little bit to make it match the parable that we want. Well, you're working on a book about women's roles in media spectacle. What other instances are you exploring other than true crime? Um, right now, as we speak, I'm, I'm knee deep in Anna Nicole Smith's research, which is only stands to reason. I think. Um, and so that's that's what I'm working on right now. And I'm also writing uh, in a more, in terms of, of projects that I'm working on in the longer term and that scare me more deeply. Uh, I'm writing about my experience working as an intern for the Georgia Innocence Project last summer and getting continuing to get up close and personal with the difference between the true crime narratives that we believe in and the way that crime actually exists uh, in America. And so, yeah, just wall-to-wall crime. That's what I'm working on. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. (laughs) It was great to talk to you again. Definitely. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Sarah for being a guest on our show. You can find Sarah at sarahmarshallwriter.com or follow her on Twitter at remember underscore Sarah. You can read her essay, Why America Will Never Stop Trying to Solve JonBenet Ramsey's Murder, at buzzfeed.com. Extra special thanks to our content editor, Annalise Jeske, and our audio engineer, Matt Leibowitz. Music by Silent Retreat.